Welcome back to the NBA show on the Mojo Sports Network. It's Alexander J, your host. Great episode today where we talk about and analyze game one of the Denver Nuggets versus Miami Heat NBA Finals, plus look into some interesting changes we might see in games two, three, four, etc. And then at the back end of the show, we get into a new segment you'll see over the next few weeks where we uh, have a look at the off-seasons for some of the teams in the lotteries. Today, we've got the San Antonio Spurs and the Charlotte Hornets, and we pick out some trades or some moves we'd like to see them make. That'll be a reoccurring segment every week from now on. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right, welcome back to the NBA Recap Show on the Mojo Sports Network. I'm Alexander J, your host from the B-Ball Bites podcast. We're going to need much more than five minutes today to talk about a couple games in the NBA this last week. We're into the NBA Finals, gentlemen, and with me, I've got three fantastic sports minds. We're going to go with him first this week just to make him feel better. It's Mr. Tom Debbie. You may have read him on the Raw.com. How are you, Tom? Um, I'm good. Not as excited as last week, but, uh, you know, finals is still exciting. Next up, you may have heard him on 91.3 Sport FM or DRN1 Sports Rap in Perth, our mini basketball encyclopedia. Yuri Bilsic, how are you? Good, Alex. Great to be back on. And man, can't believe it. Finals already. And Julian, this week, you're the last one. So from the mean streets of Melbourne, he owns a sports facility and he's our fantasy team fanatic. Julian Balthazar, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk about the playoffs. No Jack Brophy today. Lucky for him, he's commentating an NBL one game. So best of luck, Jack. And we'll move right into our game one review of the NBA finals. Gentlemen, what a game one that was. I think it had the expected outcome most of us had pegged, you know, Denver coming out of the gate. Uh, they did lose uh, the first couple of minutes. And then on top of that, they just midway through the first quarter uh, demolished you could say the Miami Heat got up to a 20-point lead on a couple of occasions. The end result, 104-93 to to Denver in Denver and those fans in Ball Arena having a really wonderful time. Um, I'm not sure if, Julian, you want to talk about a, a couple of things that sparked your interest from this game. Um, we had a few weird quirks to start with, like Aaron Gordon going for 12 points in that first quarter. Uh, what really intrigued you and what were you impressed with in game one? Yeah, probably the result we all expected, but what we might have not expected was how dominant they were. And maybe we did expect that, but gee, they, <laughs> you know, a lot of people have started to talk about sweep, you know, <laughs> are the Nuggets going to sweep Miami? And I think it's early days to be saying things like that. But what I think we, we noticed was that, was it something that we already realized as well is that Miami rely on the three-pointers a lot. And when they don't hit them, when Struess and Caleb Martin are off and, 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 you know, Robinson as well, not hitting them, they just can't find a way to the ring. Obviously, Adebayor did, Adebayor did very well and, and Jimmy Butler as well. You know, he, he had a pretty quiet game and, that, you know, they got some shots inside. But, yeah, the Nuggets just look too dominant and they can, they can get scores from any player in their starting lineup. And that's credit to Jokic. He finds them in the best position. And he is so... Um, you know, he, he loves being in that role where he can either score when he needs to or he can facilitate when he needs to. And in the first quarter, we saw that where I think he had like you know, 10 assists in like the first half. Yeah. And and it's not just the assists, it's the looks that he gives his teammates. Like there's no, it's, you know, it's no surprise that Murray and Gordon are knocking down these sort of shots when they're being put in, in unbelievable positions to the ring. It's all facilitated through Jokic. And yeah, Aaron Gordon started really, really hot, which was pretty surprising. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, it's the setup and the service that he's getting from Jokic. So um, yeah, I don't know. What do you boys think? I just think they they look really dominant. It's really hard to see them drop in a game at home after that sort of dominance. Tom, go Definitely. ahead. Oh, sorry, Yuri. No, let's go you. 
Okay, definitely agree, Alex. Team, definitely agree as well, Julian. The altitude in Denver, what's it, 5,280 feet above sea level, whatever it is, that's hard enough. And the Lakers had to endure that, right? I think before the game, there was reports that they had to eat lots of carbs and drink lots of water just to fuel and replenish their bodies because of the extreme altitude up in Denver. And don't know what Miami are going to do for, you know, for game two going into yeah, tomorrow's contest. But I think earliest Julian touched on very well too was Aaron Gordon. They got going very early. And not normally do Denver incorporate a ton of offensive plays designed for Aaron Gordon to run through. And he was it, he was taking numerous advantage of those cross matches in transition. And Miami was sort of left scrambling on who to pick him up. At one do you think point that was, was planned, matched- Yuri? Do you think they planned that coming into game one? I think so in a way too, but I think that's on Miami as well, Alex. They've got to, they're normally such a great transition, defensive transition team. And for them not to pick up their assignment earlier and then just allow Gordon to bully ball his way from what, 10 feet all the way to the hoop was, I think, something that they, they didn't want to double team as well at their own peril because Gordon's an all right passing himself. And for him to get that early offense going and really set up. What was pretty much a Denver paint domination at first half, they had 32 paint points in that opening half alone. And I think, of course, Jokic only had, what was it, two field goals or something? It was absurdly crazy. And then the second half just started going off as it usually does. And I think the other part too, Alex, the part of what really set Denver up for what they want to achieve too is Michael Porter Jr.'s Tremendous improvement on defense. He had a couple of those block shots. There was a couple of altering shots he had when Jimmy Butler went in for a few layups. And it's considerable that from only what a couple of seasons ago with him that he maybe not in terms of priding on defense, but to take more of a initiative approach in getting better because he's got the wingspan, he's got the size, he's got mm. everything there to become a solid defender and that's why he's been displaying during these playoffs. And I think that's such a great bonus for Denver when he does that. It just, it takes so much pressure off Gordon. It takes so much pressure off Contavious Caldwell Pope. Jamal Murray's an all right defender and did his part too in game one. So I think all those, the barometer there for Denver with Porter Jr. being as good as he can be, even though we probably won't see him as that elite defender, they'll go some way to Denver already having that size advantage over Miami. Yeah, you mentioned that size advantage that we all kind of expected. That really was that got exploited for Miami. Um, Tom, I'm wondering what you saw in game one. Do you have a different lens or did you see something we've already commented on? Well, look, I've, I've got plenty of Miami Heat PTSD from that seven-game <laughs> series, uh, but I promise this is, this is the last time I'll drag the Celtics into the You've got to be feeling sick, mate. You've got to be feeling sick. After getting demolished oh. by Caleb Martin, Gabe Vincent, and they go, oh. what, 0 for 19 to combine. Exactly. I mean, I've got my notes here. Role players did not show up, which the, the Heat play role players who killed us. I mean, it was Caleb Martin, Max Drews, and Duncan Robinson who all series long could not miss. And I was sitting there watching this game, and every time they fired up a shot, I'm like, that's going in. And just completely missed. I mean, Martin, three points, four rebounds, zero assists, one from seven from field. Max Drews, zero points, five rebounds, three assists, zero from 10 from the field. He was missing wide, wide open shots. Duncan Robinson, three points, one rebound, one assist, one from six from the field. The Heat won't and they can't win with production like this from these players. They would not have beaten the Celtics or the Bucks or the Heat with production like this from those players. It's just a fact. That is what's got them here. 
we look at Jimmy Butler and we go, wow, oh, he's marvellous and stuff. But the reality is it was those players that beat the Bucs and it was those players that beat the Heat. Um, and, look, speaking of Jimmy Butler, like where's playoff Jimmy actually gone? I mean, 13 points, seven rebounds, seven assists, one steal, one block, 43% from the field, did not shoot a free throw. We have not seen that all playoffs where he has not gotten to the line. Um, and since game four against Boston, he's only averaging 21.6 points, 7.8 rebounds, 6.2 assists, 1.6 steal, just under 40% from the field and 6.8 free throw attempts, which nothing that like that, what we saw uh, from him in, against that Milwaukee series. And maybe that ankle injury is starting to finally catch up with him. Maybe it's the fatigue. But if they're going to win this series, he needs to will himself into it and assert himself offensively. Yeah, definitely agree too as well, Tom. The other one I think I want to touch upon too, you mentioned as well with Max Struess and Caleb Martin's woeful shooting nights. I think Martin didn't land his first jump shot until I think it was four or eight left in the third. And of course, Struess what, missed nine three or nine of his three-point attempts. But there was something there that Coach Mike Malone harped upon when Miami made their surge. And it was about those open threes that Miami generated, which he wasn't too happy about. And he knows that if Denver don't guard that, if they don't guard the three-point line to the full extent, then those guys will exploit them as they did in the Milwaukee series, as they did in the Knicks series at times, and as they did in that series against Boston in the Eastern Conference Finals. So I think that's something that to take away from there. But the other part too, I think in the fourth when was it the Heat rattled off, what, 11 straight points to begin yeah. the fourth and Carl Larry was the catalyst for that. The other part of that too was, Haywood Highsmith guarding exactly. Jamal Murray. Yep, and that sort of disrupted quite a bit of Denver's momentum in terms of the offense too and trying to get back to that pick and roll with Murray and Jokic. But at the same time, for Miami not allowing Bam to be switched on to Jamal, they want Bam close to rim to try and alter those shots and just be that defensive presence that he is. So that's just something I took away too from that probably Miami's three-point shooting, how much of their wide-open shots they had missed, but also at the same time too, maybe the Heat have found something, maybe a magical ingredient they can go forward with for the rest of these NBA finals. Yeah, Jules, I know you had more to touch on with this game as well, but just quickly, if you told Eric Spolstra that he'd hold Denver to 104 points at home in game one, you'd probably be pretty happy with that result. Like they did do a solid job for the most part in, in some key areas on defense. I think the Nuggets shot less than 30% from the three-point line. And we talked about uh, the Heat did have 16 open looks. So the game was there to be a little bit closer if those role players performed. Um, was that what you wanted to touch on? Because there pretty, is so much to get into this game, isn't it? Pretty much spot on what I was going to say. Because earlier before I said that, you know, Denver showcased a lot of dominance. And I, I think you might look at the scoreline and go, okay, 104 to 93. But there were a lot of moments in that game where Miami could have been blown out. And mm. fortunately for them, Lowry and um, and a few other third role players who, who are stuck. Highsmith. Highsmith. Yeah, yeah, Highsmith. Lowry and Highsmith kept them in the game. Um, but if they didn't hit down some of those threes, especially Lowry, who, who hit three, they definitely could have been finding themselves like, you know, all sitting on the bench and playing their, you know, unknown players to finish that game. So uh, the scoreboard, I reckon, suggests a closer game than it actually was. Yeah. Um, but one thing I wanted to touch on was Jamal Murray. Now, Obviously, you know, Gabe Vincent and uh, actually, well, as you said, Highsmith switched on to him. So Martin kind of had a bit of a role in him in, in the first few quarters. But Jamal Murray in his last games has averaged 29 points, five rebounds, pretty much six assists, and he's shooting at 50% from the floor. I mean, that's just like for a point guard to be shooting, you know, averaging 29 points and averaging, you know, 
50% field goal percentage. We're talking about like the Steph Curry sort of category there. So, you know, obviously Jokic setting him up for some great looks is is a big plus, but geez, Jamal Murray's dominance cannot be underestimated, especially, and he's been doing it now consistently for the last nine, 10 games as well. So yeah, I don't know. He just looks like a, a star out there. He does. Um, something we haven't yet talked about is the free throw disparity. Um, Miami Heat took two free throws in game one of the NBA finals, which is the record in the playoffs for the least amount of free throws by team. I think that was actually a, a kind of a fair refereeing um, display. And I think Eric Spolstra, the Miami Heat coach, said the same thing. They didn't drive enough. They weren't aggressive enough. Uh, you could, on balance, say Bam Adebayo had 25 shots for his 26 points. And maybe you thought he should have got a couple more calls. But I thought that was pretty fine. Um, uh, Yuri, I know you wanted to touch on more. Uh, Tom, is that what you were going to speak about, the free throws as well? He's nodding along. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I, look, I, you can look at, you know, they only took two free throws and go, wow, that's surprising. But I was sitting there the whole time, and when the game ended, I didn't think at any stage that they actually were missing calls or anything because the reality is the Nuggets were, the, the Heat were taking shots that the Nuggets were happy for them to have. Mid-range BAM jumpers are not an efficient way to win, and that's why, yeah, he scored all the points, but he took 25 shots. And they were taking threes and there were a lot of open threes that they should have hit. But when they weren't open, they weren't, you know, going to foul them. And so you're not going to get to the line that way. And with Jimmy not being aggressive, it's it's just what's going to happen. So I, I fully expected in this next game, they will be making backdoor cuts. They will be driving to the hoop any chance they get. And they will basically be going to the line. I wouldn't be surprised if they were Lakers kind of numbers and where, you know, at halftime they've had about 20 free throws. Yuri? Yeah, I have to agree with that too as well, Alex and Tom. I think the other part of this as well, and I think we saw countless times in game one where Jimmy was ultra, not hesitant, but conservative in a way. I think he's he injured. Was, I'll, I'll let you keep going, you think, but I think he he's injured. He feels though the ankle, do you think, Alex? I think like, it is. From the eye test, I haven't gone back and looked at the metrics on second spectrum, but everything looked like it was two or three inches short on his jump shot, hitting the front of the rim and then rolling over. And I saw that repeatedly, and I thought that's a lack of lift either from being tired or from the ankle injury. It's about two or three weeks since he um, game one of that New York series. So having done my ankle plenty of times playing basketball, two or three weeks in is when it's it's quite difficult to get around. Um, it had blown up. We saw those images. I think it was post-game five and pre-game six in that New York series where that ankle was significantly still swollen. So it's still two weeks ago, but I'm wondering if you think the same thing, Yuri. Yeah, I do as well, Alex, too. I think what they can't fall into, Miami, and I think this is what Phoenix had too because, of course, the Suns aren't a great, in terms of a large volume, 3.3 for a shooting team, shall I say. Miami don't want to fall into that because what – Denver did exceptionally well in defense that series against Phoenix was for Nikola Jokic to hedge and hedge in terms of taking away that option of the mid-range, pulling it back, or at the same time, just completely denying those drives to rim. And that was something I think Miami did exceptionally well in those three series, but they can't allow, they can't afford for that to happen. And I think also to, they've got to try and incorporate some offense in terms of pick and roll situations where they get Nicole Jokic in the action and try and attack him because it sounds strange to say, and I think most people would know this, he's not a great shot blocker. And we spoke about this right during the regular season where in late March where Denver went through, it was that five-game skid. And mm. I think the pundits and the critics came circling out like Including a pack me. of vultures, <laughs> like a pack of vultures saying, Oh no, Nicole Jokic, here we go again, defensive liability, Denver scuffling. But they've managed to find ways to mitigate that Denver. And that has been, I think, a real 
credit to coach Mark Malone for implementing those defensive strategies by having Jokic hedge and not allowing for those counter, well, in terms of easy drives to paint or easy looks from outside for, say, Phoenix, because, of course, the Suns were such a operating from the from the mid-range, and Miami can do that too with Jimmy Butler. But, again, that's the thing, though, that Miami needs to incorporate for them to win game two and try and at least get some action going where Jokic is involved in it. So that's just my opinion on. Yeah, we're not quite at the point where that would have been a great segue for game two recommendations. We're still a lot more to talk about for game one. I spoke about Michael Porter Jr., two of 11th and three, Aaron Gordon at 12 points in that first quarter. Um, that triple-double from Jokic was his ninth this postseason, which is the NBA record. So obviously incredibly special from him. Um, and there was something else that NBA.com pointed out that game one, the winner of game one, wins the series 70% of the time. Uh, Jules, any of those things was what you wanted to touch on? Have you got more hits and stats for us? I thought that Jokic's triple-double was quite casual, which is ridiculous to say. <laughs> he just does it. Uh, you know, I think he was on like two rebounds or so in the first quarter, and then he just sort of just somehow gets to that 10. Um, it's just like he's a magnet for the triple-doubles. They stuck but- him in there for a while just to get him <laughs> that last one, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, I think you're spot on with Jimmy um, definitely battling through an ankle injury. I mean, if you consider he's been playing in the Celtics, you know, sometimes, you know, three games in two days sort of thing. So obviously like it's, it's definitely going to be bothering him, but he does need to be more aggressive as you already touched on. Um, I think the heat takes some good learnings out of that um, series. Like you said, with Highsmith defending Murray, you know, getting open looks like, of course, there's a lot of things they can do right to challenge him in the next game, but there are a lot of things that Denver can do better as well in terms of their efficiency. Like if I look at their stats, they had eight for 27 for three from the three point line, which you touched on earlier, which is 29% from three point line, even though they have some incredible three point shooters, but they're actually 50% from the floor. So if you take away all their three pointers, they were actually 32 from 52 from inside the three point mm. line, which is super efficient. Um, so as I said, like any one of their five in their starting lineup can score. And if they're not as efficient inside in game two, it'll be from the outside. Porter will fire up or Pope will fire up. So that's why I think there's, 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 a, there's a blowout coming and Denver, <laughs> and Denver are going to be at the front of it. It's interesting. Actually, before we move on, uh, one fun thing about this game is Nikola Jokic, triple-double. Nikola Jovic, also from Serbia, had a couple of minutes towards the end of the game in blowout time, and I, uh, Nikola Jokic and Jovic played in the game together. So a nice little moment. Yuri, was that what you were going to point out, or do you have one more thing before we move on? I was actually going to point out one thing too, Alex, and this is something that stood out and stood out clearly. And there was a number of easy mid-range jumpers that the Nuggets got, and especially in Murray. I think there was those couple of plays where they had Jokic set the screen for Murray and Bam was trying to wrestle with him in the post and not allowing that easy post-up play that Jokic can do every single time when he wants to. But then the problem for Miami was that Miami was at, sorry, Mario was able to get by so easily and just pull out for that mid-range jumper because there was no weak side defender going out to help. And I think that's not normally in the case for Miami in that series against Boston, the series against New York. Those defensive breakdowns didn't happen. And I think for at least the first first half of game one, there were so many leaking sinks that for Miami, it, it's strange to think about, right? And even mm. at times the 2-3 zone, it did work at the best of times too, but I think with Jokic's passing ability and all the different offensive sets that they can run Denver where they don't get stagnant, where the ball, in terms of, shall I say, the offense doesn't get down to five seconds and they're not in their offensive set. They get they get into offensive set what? 
15, 14 seconds left on a shot clock. It makes it so much easier, especially when Miami goes to like that two, three traditional zone that they're so accustomed to, say, two minutes into a half. Tom, do you have any expectations for how things will shake up differently in game two? I think the biggest adjustment that's probably going to be made is they're going to make Gokic score. I think yeah. that's going to be the, the logical one because in the first you half... You mean the Miami Heat are going to force Jokic to score? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, he took two shots at, uh, up until, what, half time, and they were winning quite easily. And anytime they doubled him, he found that open shooter. And I think the most notable one was when he had his back uh, towards the basket. They set the double team. He just rises up and found, found Bruce Brown right in the corner for an easy three. And the, the thing is, this roster is so well constructed that there are shooters all over the floor around Jokic. So it doesn't matter who he hits. He's going to find someone who's not afraid to go up at the ball. So I think you'd rather lose with Jokic scoring 50 and having five assists opposed to Jokic having you know all those assists and rebounds and also scoring points and getting the line. I mean, he got to the line 12 times in this game, which you just really should not be doing if you're going to try and double team him. Um I, I personally think that they should probably get a second big man in there. Whether Kevin Love can do it, mm. maybe, but definitely, definitely not Zeller after what we saw in game one. But I think the aim needs to be to make, uh, give that second big man to just sort of roam off Aaron Gordon and sort of play that floating free safety role. Um, and because, you know, Gordon took 10 shots in this game, only two of them were from outside the paint whereas the Lakers were forcing him to shoot threes. And that is what really broke their offense at times because every time Gordon went up, he just bricked it and they got the rebound. And so I think that's kind of what you do because if you can get Bam floating in off Jokic, Jokic is going to struggle to score. But if they make him be that scorer, anything can really happen. But again, you say that, they got Jamal Murray who is just red hot. (laughs) But I think coming into the season, all the talk was LeBron, Davis, you know, Kawhi, Paul George, Tatum, Brown, Embiid, Hart, and all these duos. I think Gordon and Jokic are by far the best duo now. And I mean, this kind of playoff run, it, it's not quite Shaq and Kobe level, but it is insane what they this, uh, two are doing together. You'd been saying that almost two months ago. Are we underestimating the pick and roll game between Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, Tom? So I'll give credit where credit's due. Uh, Yuri, do you see anything else shaking out game two or three that any expectations have changed? I think there's one point or two, Alex, and the Lakers, of course, didn't really pay too much attention to Aaron Gordon when he was left open for those corner threes. I think Miami fell into that same trap as well. I think it was, was it 9.59 in the first quarter and the scores, what, 2 all, And then Jokic had the ball. There came a double team. He kicked it back out to Gordon, who was all by himself. And you only saw Jimmy Butler make a half closer. It wasn't that full full-on sprint close out where you throw your arms up in the air as though the game's on the line with, what, 0.5 seconds left and the team's down one netting a two or three to win the game. But I think going on what Denver did exceptionally well and we touched upon this was just getting Gordon those easy touches down low and just clearing the floor for him. And how many times do we see that? Three, four, five times that first quarter? And Miami are just completely overwhelmed and obliterated into submission because of Gordon's bully ball tactics, which, yes, probably in his first, what, two, three seasons in the league when he was with the Orlando Magic, we never saw because he was that high-flying dunker and him and, what, Nikola Vucevic when Vucevic was playing with the Orlando Magic at the time. So, yeah, times are far different with that. And he's, his offensive all-round game is significantly improved. And even during the regular season, right, he averaged, what, close to 17 points which was, I'm pretty sure, a career high. So I think 
for Miami, you want to pay the full amount of attention and not be so lack, lackadaisical in a way where you just instantly forget about him and all of a sudden he puts he strings up six, eight quick points in a row and gets Jokic and then Murray gets into a flow and then Contavious Caldwell-Pope and then a Bruce Brown off the bench as he did in game one. So, again, yeah, it's just one of those things, I think, for Miami that they had that in a way when they had to face Milwaukee. They had that at times with the Knicks and they had that at times with Boston, but this is a whole different beast. The last thing I'll, I'll touch on uh, before we move on to our most important news stories for the week is I'm expecting Cody Zeller gets significantly less minutes and Kevin Love, who was a did not play coach decision for game one, does play minutes in game two for sizing, but also uh, those outlet passes that he was throwing with some regularity early in the playoffs. I think the fast break points is an area where Miami, they've got Gabe Vincent, uh, Highsmith um, proved he could do that in game one and um, Caleb Martin can get out and get points quickly. I wouldn't be surprised if they look to that in, in some points of the game. But when you've got Jamal Murray and you've got Nikola Jokic and you've got Michael Porter Jr., Kentavious Cardwell-Pope and Aaron Gordon on the floor, four of those blokes are pretty tall and got long arms and passing lanes dry up pretty quickly. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting challenge for Miami. I know you guys all picked um, the Nuggets in five or six. Uh, not looking wrong at this point in time. Uh, moving on to our most important news stories of the week. While the NBA Finals goes on, lots of uh, background noise is occurring. And Tom, you've got a really important hire first up. Yes, well, unfortunately, Jack's not here to take this one, but I will step up in his absence. Um, money talks, that's basically the headline here. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was reported, I think, two weeks ago that uh, Monty Williams had turned down the Pistons. And then uh, when I woke up the other day and saw that he'd uh, accepted the job, I was a bit bit puzzled. And then I saw the money figure next to it and I uh, was no longer. And what was that value, Tom? Uh, it's a six-year contract worth $78.5 million. <laughs> Potential to go up to $100 million. It's the largest coaching deal in NBA history. He will net himself $13 million per season. So... To put that in perspective, next season he will earn more money than players such as Josh Hart, Rob Williams, Bobby <laughs> Portis, his leading man, Cade Cunningham, LaMelo Ball, Al Horford, Alex Caruso, Nick Claxton. He would he would be the second highest paid player on the Pistons if he was one, next to Bojan Bogdanovic, who earns $20 million, which is just insane. Um I'm not quite sure exactly what I saw from Monty Williams to sort of earn being the highest paid coach, but it was obviously that Detroit just wanted someone with experience. Um, Look, they've got a young roster. They're not going to be ready to compete until 2026 at the earliest, and that's competing for the play-in, you'd think. Um, They do have the fifth draft pick. They've got some nice players around them, but not really like, hey, Cunningham, I mean, he missed all last year to injury. There's questions whether, you know, that was just, you know, to tank for Wemby or not and if he could have actually come back. Um, but my concern here and what I actually kind of, you know, it's hard to feel sorry for someone who's about to earn $13 million a year, but I feel like this might be Monty Williams becoming a culture coach yes. and not a winning coach. And I feel like this could be him being like the, you know, the, the house flipper. He's going to be the guy who, who's never going to own the nice house, but he's going to come in, he's going to renovate, he's going to make it kind of look a lot better than what it is, sell it, take that money, and then just do it again. Like what he did at Phoenix is insane. Like Phoenix is now known as a winning team. It, 
five years ago, they were the laughing stock of the NBA. It was, oh, the best thing they've done in years is Devin Booker scored 70 points in a game they lost. <laughs> now, now they're like one of the most valuable teams in the league and everyone takes them like serious. They've got one of the best players to ever play the game in Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, one of the best young talents. Bonte Williams did that. And I, I think that's what the aim here is. Obviously, you know, 78.5 million is a lot to pay for to boost morale and culture. I mean, you know, might have, could have tried maybe a corporate retreat before they did this, but, um, or a bit of go-karts or something. But look, we'll see. I, I fear that by the time this roster becomes, you know, good enough to compete, if they make the right moves, Pistons are just going to go, all right, great. You've done what you needed you to do. Now we're going to move on to a more experienced coach. But that's what I think. I'm interested to get your thoughts. Yuri, I think you've got some thoughts on this one as well. Yeah, it was very interesting actually too, Alex and Tom, that as Tom mentioned, Monty Williams declined the initial offer and then the owner Tom Gores and the general manager Troy Weaver set out this very enticing plan for Williams to coach the Detroit Pistons and it's all central, centralised, of course, around their young players in Kate Cunningham who only played, what, 12 games during the regular season before he was shut down and I think his last game came against Boston on November 9 before undergoing heel surgery and you think of the guys like Jalen Duran too who absolutely took leaps and strides as that centre and the pairing alongside Isaiah Stewart who for his what rookie season was playing at centre then switched to power forward and his three-point shooting incrementally got better as the season went by. Boyan Bogdanovich has what two years left on that deal which he signed the extension I think October last year. Jaden Ivey showed plenty of glimpses with his with his speed and transition, especially in his facilitating. And I think the other part too, which is going to be intriguing for Detroit, is they've got a pretty logjam front court, right? And they've mm. also got, what, four veterans who are over 30, including Bogdanovich, Corey Joseph. Those are two that come to mind. I was doing some research on the Pistons roster again. But I think the other section too, as mentioned, is the logjam front court, and Marvin Bagley is part of that rotation. So I'll be interested to see what they do just this upcoming summer, Detroit, because I feel as though that Stuart Duran pairing going into the future will serve them in very good stead. Stuart has already shown that he's a physical rebounder, likes likes to really match it up with the bigger power forwards and centers in the league, and J- Jalen Duran's rebounding and shot blocking just got better. And once he got inserted into the starting lineup, I think I think it might have been December. I think roughly it was December when Duran got his opportunity to play major minutes and he just capitalized on it. And just see a good nucleus in the way there for Detroit for the Piston Chasse. Because they haven't been in the playoffs since twenty nineteen, was it when they put all their chips in one basket for Blake Griffin to pair alongside Andre Drummond and then Reggie Jackson, their so called big three at the time and of course, that didn't work. And what we have to go back to what ninety nine two thousand when Grant Hill wanted out because he was a what unrestricted free agent at the end of his deal with the with the Detroit Pistons. They got who back Chucky Atkins and Ben Wallace, and Ben Wallace was just a defensive freak in himself, as everyone knows. And they got Rick Carlisle in the summer of two thousand one to completely change that roster. But that was a different time then, though, Alex, because they had veterans that they brought in like a Cliff Robinson that instantly helped the team and John Barry came along and that was a far different story back then. But this is completely different though, Alex. They've been going through this rebuild for what, the last three seasons? Too long. Best. And yeah. yeah, too long in a way when you haven't 
had successes they've had in what the, since the 2000s. And what was the last conference finals was what, 2008 against Boston when they lost in six games. They had Chauncey Billups who absolutely tore up the Lakers in the 2004 finals. So Detroit, uh, Detroit fans are very passionate about their franchise and have been since the success of the 80s and what the 2000s from basically the mid-2000s and haven't seen it since then. So again, I think it is a good high in a way to have Coach Monty Williams, is why he did with Phoenix when he took them on board and after what happened, this a losing culture. And he did the same thing too, I think, with the Pelicans, Alex, in that season 2014-15 when they just got into the playoffs and won 45 games. I think they won the season series against OKC, which allowed them to get through as that number eight seed. And they had a very good team back then, the Pelicans that year. So, yeah, yeah, unlucky enough so, to win Coach of the Year back with the Pelicans and did oh, in 2022 with the Suns as well. So it's not yeah, like absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that Pelicans team back then to Alex was a very good team. They had Drew Holiday, they had Eric Gordon, they had Tyrek Evans, they had Davis, and they had Omiya Sheik. And what did they sign into a five-year, $60 million deal a season later? But yeah, that, that core was solid enough to have kept them all together, Alex. They could have gone some way, but that's the Pelicans, this is the Pistons. And I feel as though the roster that they do have, that can compete in who knows how many seasons. It's got enough, but they've just got to improve it defensively. But they do have those pieces there to make strides. Moving on to the New York Knicks. And Jules, I think your biggest news of the week comes in the form of Julius Randle. Very quick injury update. Randle, um, who aggravated his knee against Miami in the regular season and then came back and then re- redid his ankle against uh, Cavaliers, has had successful surgery. He will be back before next season. Very quick injury update for you. Oh, that was very quick. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep moving, lads. <laughs> yeah, we are running short on time because we want to get to what we want to uh, see the Spurs and Charlotte doing the offseason. So, Yuri, you've got 20 seconds to talk about another new head coach. Me? Oh, yes. So, Frank Vogel. So, Phoenix and Coach Vogel are very close to terms on him signing a five-year deal. I think it's worth about $31 million, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, about totally. half of what they gave Monty yeah. Williams. <laughs> half, half, yes. So, my intriguing point about this too, Alex, is the bench and it was wafer thin, very wafer thin. That is all I can describe it as when Book and Durant were playing 40 plus minutes in that series against Phoenix and 40 plus in that first round series against the Clippers. How do they bring, in terms of what they do in the summer free agency, defensive oriented guys? Because Frank Vogel, when he was coaching the Indiana Pacers, right, they had Yar Mahimi, Roy Hibbert, David West, all blue collar guys, Lance Stevenson, George Hill, Paul, a young Paul George back then, they were arguably the top defensive team in the league at the time. And he did it with the Lakers, got him to that championship bubble in 2020. And he didn't have that success in Orlando when he took over. Well, I think it was the summer of 2016. And it only lasted what, a couple of years before he was fired. But that is the benchmark identity of coach Frank Vogel. That's why he preaches most. And I think those changes, they have to try and get a few more perimeter-oriented wings. That's where I think you've got to first start yeah, off with and then try and build off there. Because Terrence, Terrence Ross has never been renowned as a wing perimeter defender. Landry Shamit's definitely not a wing perimeter defender. So I think those are the real burning questions for Phoenix this offseason. How do they get defenders to build around Durant and Booker? Because those two will combine for 55, 60 points every given night. 
And Frank Vogel winning a championship with the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, the Los Angeles Lakers in 2020, the bubble season. Okay, very quickly, some other news that we missed. Uh, Bob Myers is stepping down from the GM position for the Golden State Warriors. A lot of people credit him for um, a lot of the work outside of Kevin Durant joining that team, the cap explosion. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if he gets another role in the league or if he's just stepping down altogether. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't speak on the jar news that is hovering over the NBA finals. The commissioner, Adam Silver, said that they had discovered some other evidence about Jar's uh, pending suspension and he won't talk about it because the finals are on. So uh, expect us maybe in two weeks' time to be able to talk about that. Uh, and finally, Tom, I don't know if you know too much about this, but there was news today that a number of Celtics assistants are leaving the Celtics to join Ime Udoka in Houston, names such as Ben Sullivan, Mike Moser, and Garrett Jackson. Uh, 30 seconds from you if you're familiar with these guys, the job they do, and if you think that's a really troubling sign for the Seas. Yeah, no, it's quite common. I mean, these guys are all Adoka's men when he was came in. Um, it's only fair that they want to go now and be with him because they're quite familiar with him. Uh, and look, I, I think it's time Missoula gets his own staff. They've backed him. Brad Stevens did come out in the week and said Missoula will be there next week, next year. So I say, let's bring in his own staff. Let's bring in the right guys. Let's get some more experience on that bench. And these guys, look, they want to go with Odoka. I can't blame him. Blame them. And, yeah, let's see. I mean, we lost uh, – I can't remember his first name, but we lost a guy called Stonemeyer during the year who went to Georgia Tech. It really hurt us. We lost uh, Handy from um, Jazz. So, look, bring in some new guys. But, yeah, that's all I've got to say. Great. doesn't sound like it's too bad then. <laughs> all right. We're going to move on to a segment we're going to do reoccurring through the next few weeks uh, where we look at some teams that need to do some work in the offseason. And we're going to give our thoughts based on their cap situation, their roster players, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to go in the order of the lottery, I think, um, and go the San Antonio Spurs and the Charlotte Hornets for today. And then next week, Portland and Houston, I think, have the fourth pick uh, and so on and so on over the next few weeks. Um, and the San Antonio Spurs are in an interesting uh, position for me. If you listen to the show a couple of weeks ago, I was hoping they would get that number one pick with Victor Wembanyama. I think they have some interesting pieces. Uh, but next year, they've got about $88 million committed in salary cap. And that's a fluid number because they'll have to offer... Um, Obviously, Victor Wembanyama will retain some money in the draft and blah, 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 blah. So it's not a, a set 88 million cap at about 124 million, um, but they have a number of players coming into free agency. So I'll set the scene for the Spurs and then Tom, we might go to you first and then filter around the horn and see what everyone else thinks. So uh, players like Doug McDermott and Devontae Graham are still under contract. Uh, Ken Birch is still there. Jeremy Sohan still there on just five and a half mil. Keldon Johnson's a big one for the Spurs. He's taken up $20 million. That declines over the next four years again. Um, but players on free agency are Gorgie Dang, uh, Keita Beats-Diop, Trey Jones, Sandro Mamuklishvili, Julian Champagne, and Dominic Barlow. Those last three got minutes towards the end of the season. There is a lot of flexibility here. And you think about what the Spurs need when they've got a guy like Victor Wembanyama coming in. I wonder if you guys feel the same to me, but... They would need some strength because I know uh, Wemby doesn't want to play that center position all the time. And maybe a really good ball handler slash uh, a point guard to set up what might happen. Tom, I think we might be thinking along the same lines. Jump in here. Yeah. So I look at a team like the Houston Rockets and everyone's saying the same thing. They're just losers, basically. The way they've sort of tried to rebuild is just get young guys in. They lose every week and there's no culture. There's not no winning environment happening. And I, th- I, I fear that if it's just Victor Wembanyama who's going to supposedly come in and turn these guys around in his first year, I don't think that's going to be enough. I think eventually it will be, but I, I think they need to develop a culture straight from the get-go. And, you know, they don't have Monty Williams, but who else was a big part in building that Suns culture? 
Chris Paul, who I think is very much available on this trade market, even though he does have a big contract. Really, the Spurs have cap space. They're not going to be competing when he's still got that contract. So why not make the trade? Now, what could that trade look like? I've got two. One, quite boring, straightforward. One, very interesting. So I'll give you the boring one first, but it's basically just the Suns get pick 44 in the draft and then the Spurs just get Chris Paul and pick 52. And that's basically the Suns just going, we just want to get rid of Chris Paul for whatever we can get. Let's get him off this roster. Let's open up some cap space. The more interesting one is the three team trade between Phoenix, San Antonio, and Portland, where the Suns would get Damian Lillard, Devontae Graham, Spurs would just get Chris Paul, and then Portland would get Campaign, who's on that expiring deal. So will they really be able to afford him after his deal's up? Probably not. DeAndre Ayton, pretty clear they want to get rid of him anyway. Uh, They'll get a, a round one pick from Spurs, which is originally from Toronto, which is top six protected. Spurs might want to put the top 10 protection on it. Uh, 2023 round two pick, I pick 33 in the draft, and then uh, first round pick from the Suns in 2024, which is not a huge return for Damian Lillard, but the reality is Portland aren't going to send him to some rebuilding team. I don't really think anyone else outside the Knicks is going to be able to offer a massive package for him. So I think this is sort of a, a fun way to sort of weave it in. Will that happen? Probably not. But I think I think that that's my suggestion. But yeah, your thoughts? I was thinking on a, a different line on the point guard thing. Um, you know who really loves Texas, specifically Houston? James Harden. Houston's not too far from San Antonio. I'm just saying if James Harden, who's 34 or something, wants to post up, chase a ring with Victor Wembanyama and throw him lobs and assist pass and shoot three occasionally, I'm just saying the Spurs have a lot of cap space. Uh, Yuri, what would you like to see the Spurs do this offseason? <laughs> I think Popovich would hold Harden accountable if he went to San Antonio. <laughs> no more compilation defensive highlight clips on YouTube, please. Yeah. No. I think what they should do in the way, because Trey Jones' contract ex- has expired now. Yep. I feel as though they should re-sign him. There's something there that he's shown, and I'm pretty sure as well his brother ties with the Memphis Grizzlies, if I'm not mistaken, too, as well. He's, he's basically a starting caliber point guard in any given team. And I think Trey's shown that his assist-to-turnover ratio is pretty minimal, even though I think most young players do struggle with their jump shot early on, and he's did it the best of times. But he's shown that he can be that floor facilitator. And, of course, signing Keldon Johnson to that, what, four-year, $74 million deal last October because, well, he had a player option before the season began. So the Spurs have definitely done a big kick there, locking away Johnson because he's one of the – core pieces for the future. How old is he? What, 22, if I'm not mistaken? So who was that, Trey Jones? No, Keldon Johnson, oh, sorry. Oh, Keldon Johnson, 23. Yeah, 23. So there's so much upside, and he's already shown that this season. And I think we saw early on his shooting percentages were roughly around 45%, had that significant dip where he was only shooting 32%, and then gradually got those num- numbers back up again. And when he added, of course, Webin Yama with that first overall pick, the Spurs' first selection since... Tim Duncan back in 1997. And the power forward spot too, I feel as though, because Jeremy Sohan showed promise too, and Zach Collins when he got his opportunity. Yeah, Zach well, Collins is Zach, still there, yeah. Yeah, Zach Collins before he was drafted in 2017, Alex, there was quite a fair bit of hype around him at coming out of Gonzaga, and he showed so much promise with his back-to-play back to basket and his face-up game and really was something that could deliver a promise. And, of course, he had those numerous shoulder injuries, which really 
robbed of what he could do early on. And I think we saw that late in the regular season that he's displaying why he was selected 10th overall six years ago. So I think where they go in terms of routes on who they start as their power forward, I think that's something we will not know as of yet. But there's so many interesting decisions that the Spurs are, are going to make. And I think this is something that they did when they were in their prime and they were building around Duncan Parker and Manu Ginobili trying to build around with role players and just having them seamlessly fit into the Spurs culture and system under Popovich. So just looking forward to seeing what they actually do. Zach Collins has got a bit of an yeah. interesting quirk as well, Yuri. He's the only member of that Spurs team whose contract is not fully guaranteed. Uh, mm. So I expect he could be a bit of a trade ship as well with this new uh, cap rules coming in. There might be some teams finding themselves in the need of some relief. Um, Jules, what do you think about the Spurs? Have you got a blockbuster trade like Chris Paul or just some tinkering around the edges you would like them to see? No, You'd like, them, hard, you'd like to see them do. Jeez, my words. It's hard to... To announce another name that you gentlemen haven't covered already, I think you you all make great points. I, I, the Harden one's interesting. I think, yeah, and like I said when we talked about where do we hope that Wemben Yama lands, I'd said Hornet so that he could play with someone like Lamelo Ball, who could love the ball to him. So I think you're on the on the money there. You know, you know, do they look at someone like Tyrese Maxey? Probably not because he doesn't have that you know that ball handling um, ability like in Harden or a Chris Paul. So, but I think also. If I look at the lineup of Trey Jones, Vassell, Johnson, Zohan, Wembenyama, which could be their starting five, you know, provided they didn't make any trades, what's the harm in waiting and see what it plays out like and then seeing mm-hmm. what can be done? So it's actually not the worst lineup and seeing how they gel together. But um, yeah, you, you guys mentioned some awesome trades. One last thing before we move to the Hornets. Um, Golden State, you see uh, Bob Myers stepping down and some of that might be there's a lot of pressure on that salary cap, uh, particularly around there can only be one of Jordan Poole and Draymond Green remaining. I think both of those are potentially interesting choices for the Spurs team. Draymond Green might bring some physicality and protection for Wemby. Uh, Jordan Poole, you think maybe if he could have a, a coach mentor, might be able to rein in his play into something more sustainable. Um just to float that out there. So moving on to the Charlotte Hornets, they're the second pick in the draft this year. Uh, probably Scoot Henderson is looking like that number one. And I can't remember that young guy's name out of. No Alabama. one knows. Alabama. Brandon Miller. Brandon yeah. Miller. Yeah, sorry. Um, it's a toss up there with who they're going to pick. Try and pick best player available, but. The Hornets have uh, 88 mil uh, committed for next season. So I'll bring up their roster now and let you know who they've got locked in for next season. So Gordon Haywood, the last year of that 31 million deal. Uh, Terry Rozier's locked in with 23 to 26 mil over the next three years. Lamelo Ball, the last year of his contract, it is a team option. He's not secured, but you'd think they keep Lamelo Ball. Um, Cody Martin, 7 mil. James Booknight, 4.5 mil. And then you've got Mark Williams, Kai Jones. JT Thor, great name, and Bryce McGowan. So the only other members uh, under contract. So a lot of flexibility for them as well. Um, Tom, do you want to start with what you should think the Hornets should do this offseason? Because this is a very confusing team for my mind. I know uh, Team Jordan is, is looking at selling the team and trying to make a profit. Um, but especially that pick in the draft is I don't know who they go for. I don't know if you want to start there or some free agents. Yeah, well, it's interesting. They tried a few years ago uh, to do the route of let's overpay some okay players to bring them in and, look, didn't pay off. Haywood was constantly injured. Terry Rozier has not lived up to his contract. Uh, and so I think it's time that they just go, all right, let's completely blow this <clears throat> blow this up. Let's go with the young guys. Let's build around LaMelo Ball and this number two pick. Who are they going to pick? I think they should pick Scoot Henderson and just sort of make a way to work it out. But really, on paper, they would be better with Brandon Miller just because they got a guard in LaMelo already. 
um, whether they might want to try and work out a little bit of a trade between them and Portland and mm. force Portland to sort of give up a little something to move up a little, one pick. Who knows? The the elephant in the room is going to be Miles Bridges. It's reported that he's going to come back after those domestic violence uh, charges. Uh, and he will serve some form of a suspension when he is back, but he has missed one year. And he was actually showing signs, but... Is that he was really doing more guy? than showing signs, Tom. He was yeah. playing great, yeah. Playing great. He was borderline all-star uh, at one point. Yeah, it's just, you know, is that the kind of guy you want to build your culture around? We'll see. Um, for me, look, it doesn't matter who's on their roster uh, next season. They're not going to be competing. So if I'm them, I'm trying my best to get rid of Haywood. He's on that expiring deal. Take whatever you can get. Um I, I, I'd had a tinker around with the trade machine today. I couldn't really find anything too appealing with Hayward because the reality is he's not going to go to some nothing team. They're not going to take that salary for no reason. Hornets aren't going to want to trade any picks to get off the salary because there's no point. So the best trade I could come up with is send him to the Kings, get back Rashawn Holmes, pick 24, pick 38 in this year's uh, draft. Maybe you can bundle up a bunch of picks and move it a little bit up higher in the draft, but... Look, Kings get Hayward. He can, he's probably going to be a slightly better version of Harrison Barnes, and maybe they, they'll take a little bit of a better step. But outside of that, that's all I could really come up with for them. Off the top of my head, there's maybe one team that would be happy taking on a salary in the short term, and it's the Washington Wizards who have a brand-new GM. They might try and do a quick reset. Um, I didn't bring it up for the Spurs, but I think Kyle Kuzma is an interesting free agent this offseason, and maybe you could work a trade there, sign and trade. Um, Julian, what about you? Is there anything for the Hornets that intrigues you? I know we didn't speak about Kelly Oubre Jr. or PJ Washington. They're both free agents at the moment. Um, Shvima Khyluk is paid 1.8 mil. He's a free agent. I thought he was good enough to take another look, but not sure if there's anything else there that interests you. I think it's time to give up the Oubre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Oubre. It's just not working, I think. I mean, he's, he shows some promise when he's in the starting lineup and and, and good shooting, but I don't know. I, I they need to head in a new direction, I think, the Hornets. I actually really like um, Brandon Miller. I've been watching him a lot. And I agree with Tom. He probably does clash a bit with Lamelo. He even rebounds well as well and, and assists. But, you know, he's a great player and can shoot, so why not bring him in? Succinct. I like it. Yuri, thoughts on the Hornets? Yeah, again, I think the other part is to Alex. They haven't had a free agent want to come to Charlotte since what Al Jefferson in 2013. And of course he should have made the all-star team that season as well. In the 2013-14 season, the voters completely robbed him of what was a brilliant campaign he had. I think there is promise in what they have with Mark Williams, their center when they inserted him into the starting lineup and he showed tremendous improvement. I think coach Steve Clifford was raving of him of a game. I think it was in December actually. And he just went through, went leaps and bounds with his efficiency on the court, with his defensive presence. And the other part too about it as well is what do they actually, as Julian mentioned as well, what do they actually put in a trade package offer for Kelly Oubre? That's the most interesting part of it. Who do they actually want to target? Because Charlotte's problem last season, right, was defense. And they were basically bottom three at best in opponents' three-point percentage and field goal percentage and points allowed and all those different statistical categories, they've got to somehow figure out a way. It's not going to all be one chunk where they completely turn around their defensive fortunes because most of their guys are offensive-minded players. And so I think that's where you first have to begin with, just the same way with the times of the San Antonio Spurs too because they have regressed significantly in the last 
three three seasons of best on the defensive end, which of course back then they weren't when they won those five championships. I think for me that the Hornets are the hardest team to talk about that we'll touch on over the next few weeks. Like the Spurs, very interesting. We can keep rattling off free agents, and they have enough space and desire of free agents to want to go there. Uh, but the Hornets, in particular, you look at that roster and you go, "Oh, why would I want to play one in Charlotte?" I mean, Lamelo Ball's there, but he's not an, under any more contract. He could be out next year if he doesn't sign the um, an extension, or if he gets offended, he doesn't get off of the max or whatever, whatever. And across that roster, there's not a lot of other things going on. Like Lamelo Ball, young kid, Brandon Miller, he's got an interesting reputation coming out of college at the moment. Uh, obviously, Miles Bridges, federal charges. There isn't a great culture there. It's all young guys. I find it really troubling to see free agents wanting to go there. Um, so it might take some excellent draft work to get there. Whereas if we look next week to Portland, they're kind of under a, a bit of pressure to one, either keep Dame or two, get a haul for him. And then Houston's got more young guys like Alperin Sangu and Jalen Green. So the Hornets are probably the most confusing team in the league to me outside of maybe Washington. But even Washington has a direction now. They have a new GM. Maybe they just pick a reset. Yuri, last thing before we sign off. Yeah, so... Maybe perhaps the Hornets, if they can turn around just like the early 90s with those draftings of Larry Johnson and Alonzo Mourning, but that may be seem like a distant memory from here. But again, we'll find out sooner or later, right? Because when you haven't been in the playoffs since, what, 2015-16, if I'm not mistaken as well, with Charlotte and those couple of other seasons that they had, I think 17-18, Alex, so they were expected to make the playoffs when they, what, they brought Dwight Howard along and... There was those reports that came out. I've they did along with his teammates. <laughs> yeah, it didn't go down too well that season. That's Jeremy Lin, so. right? He played all right. Oh, Jeremy Lin was 15 16. 15 16. Jeez, I've, I've suppressed a few series. Mi- was there that epic series against Miami, right, where that Charlotte Hornets purple fan got into a Dwayne Wade? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do remember that, actually. Yeah, oh, court side in the classic. playoffs. Yeah. yeah. That well, that's a classic. That's a wonderful place to leave this week's episode. <laughs> so uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, Tom, you got any articles this week? Uh, I'll have another AFL article up on Footy Live and uh, might might whip up something about the NBA. Uh, we'll see how these next couple of games go. Yeah, I actually read that article this morning on the Footy Live. It was, it was a really good article. Yuri as well. You got any more writings coming out this week? Yeah, just going to whip out another, probably what we've learned from the first two games on my own Substack account and, Probably take a look at, I think, the last eight or nine seasons with the AFL and why the competition has been as close as, as it's ever been because the ladder has just been snakes and ladders where there's not much separating teams anymore. So I'll probably take a bit more of a deeper dive scope into that. I think it's something that probably fascinate the listeners. So those are a couple I've got coming out this week. And plus also the AFL podcast too with Julian and Nathan Jennings as well going to preview round 13. So much to get through. I was just going to lead into that. If you didn't listen last week, Julian and Yuri are both on the AFL podcast on the uh, Mojo Sports Network. Julian, what do you got coming out this week? Yes, AFL podcast will be coming out. And um, brother of B-Ball Bites, AFL Bites has just been born as well, which is exciting. So that's a little uh, friendly neighborhood recap of the AFL in under five minutes. So the, the first episode was six minutes. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> we, we, we had an intro to get through and stuff. So I think with the buy rounds, there's no reason why we won't keep it under five. But no, that's, that's super exciting. And off to a hot start as well, Alex. Yeah, yeah. And if you want more NBA content, I host Beeble Bites, a five-minute NBA podcast, about three or four episodes a week during the NBA finals period. 
But as always, we'll be here next week with another hour-long podcast. Hey, uh, we've had lots of questions come through Instagram. So if you've got uh, suggestions for trades over the next few weeks, send those through if you want to ask a question to the team. Uh, get in contact on Instagram. We're at Mojo Stateside and Mojo Sports Network. Uh, what am I forgetting? Please leave us a rating. I feel like we enjoy that. That always makes me feel good, dopamine. But other than that, boys, we'll leave it here and I'll get in touch next week. So I think we've got three games, if I'm not mistaken. We've got game two, game three, and then it goes to every other day. So hopefully by the end of game four, we can touch base and see. Any predictions, Yuri? Do you think it'll be 4-0 by then, series over? Uh, I don't think so. I think he'll be... Oh, that's an interesting one. I still see Denver taking game two, so it'll be 2-0 heading back to South Beach. I feel as though Miami will take either one of games three and four, and I think... Yeah, the series will still be close enough as it is. All righty. Let's leave it there. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks again for joining me. Have a great day. Cheers, Alex. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Alex.